Hi, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Womenhood and International Relations podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla, and for today's episode, we will be addressing the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, Feminist Approaches and Critiques. For those of you in the Spanish language, we have already launched a free virtual course on Women, Peace and Security Agenda, what it entails, what the different resolutions it provides since 2018. Some of the videos are already available in my Facebook page at Natalia Bonilla uh, Projects, so I invite you to check them out. And for those of you in the English language, I wanted to record this episode in order to provide some context to the different interviews that we have featured so far in the podcast, specifically related to gender, militarism, and the future um, interviews that we are going to launch in partnership with two organizations that I'm so excited to be sharing uh, more in a couple of days. The announcement will come in a couple of days where we're going to be addressing women, peace and security and national action plans in uh, several countries in the Middle East. Meanwhile, <laughs> I wanted to approach this subject and share not only what the agenda is about, maybe like several um, introductory elements, but also what are the main critiques that feminist lenses applied to IR provide on the nature and the origins, as well as the implementation of this agenda. So if you're new in the Women, Peace and Security um, agenda, then this episode is definitely for you. And if you're new into the feminist lenses applied to the Women, Peace and Security agenda, this episode definitely is for you. Okay, so let's begin with what the Women, Peace and Security Agenda is all about. The Women, Peace and Security Agenda began first in 2000s with the UN Security Council Resolution 1325. That was a resolution that was a historical political framework that showed not only the gender dimensions of uh, conflict and war, but also how women and girls experience war differently than men. And it was a very groundbreaking moment in international relations as well as in the history of the United Nations Security Council because they also um, recognize that the meaningful impact of women's political participation in peace processes, in conflict resolution and peace building efforts. I find important to stress that UN Security Council 1325 is still the main resolution that many organizations base mm, their programs by and many governments continue referring to the 1325 even the United um, Nations women UN women continue referring to the 1325 um, resolution as, as the biggest landmark in all the um, follow-up uh, instruments legal instruments that were approved afterwards so what does this um, big milestone that was approved and adopted on October 31st, 2000 entailed? First, it was the first time that the U.S. Security Council addressed the disproportionate and unique impact of armed conflict on women. It also recognized the undervalued as well as underutilized contribution women make 
to conflict prevention, peacekeeping, conflict resolution, and peacebuilding, as we have said so far. And it also stresses the importance of women's equal and full participation as active agents in peace and security. And it also provides ground for the gender mainstreaming call on all U.S. Security Council approaches to conflict and war. This is something that we are going to touch upon in a couple of minutes. But before we continue with the following resolutions that comprise the agenda of women, peace, and security, I find it important to understand a bit of the context of what led to the UN Security Council, which is, you know, like the top organization or the top organism in the United Nations um, system to agree and recognize the gender dimension of war. There are several instruments that led and prepared and paved the way for this resolution to came about. Um, the Geneva Convention in 1949, the Refugee Convention in 1951, and the Convention on Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women approved in 1979, which led to the creation of the CEDAW. Um, I, think, I think it's also very important to stress that the different um, international world conferences on women, on the status of women, um, most specifically the 1995, the fourth um, conference of women that led to the um, Beijing platform and the Beijing declaration, that those are instruments that just last year <laughs> we celebrated and commemorated um, 25 years of its making. But also what happened in this span of 10 years, because when we are tracing back to the UN Security Council 1325, uh, we see a lot of remembrance and a lot of um, recognition of the toll of not only conflict and war, but also ethnic cleansing and genocide that took place in that decade of the 1990s to the 2000s and also the famous humanitarian intervention that took place in 1998-1999 with Kosovo. Um, with the fall of the Cold War, we could see the spiraling uh, effect that it took not only in the Caucasus but also in Balkans region with the different um, ethnic cleansings that took place and, and the war that was unleashed in um, former Yugoslavia con uh, context, which, you know, features Serbia, Bosnia, um, Croatia, and also Kosovo later. Um, we could see the toll that it took on women's bodies with the different rape camps that took place um, specifically against Muslim women, Muslim Bosnian women, and Kosovian women, but also the rape that was um, traded against men and boys, specifically in uh, the case of Croatia, doing that war. Uh, I'm going to feature below several books, several films and documentaries on that specific case if you're interested about. Um, I used to study um, these rape camps specifically for my master's degree um, in international relations. This was one of my focus areas um, on, on gender and sexual torture, and it was, it was 
horrible <laughs> to to watch um, and read and learn from the different accounts of the survivors of these um, incredible conflict situation. But while that happened in Europe, we could see that in Africa, things were also moving at, at a hugely concerning way. And I don't know if there's another word to replace horror or horrifying because it seems like that's one keyword to explain, you know, the genocide in Rwanda, the toll and humanitarian devastation that took place in the Eastern um, Democratic Republic of Congo and the different other um, conflicts that um, women's peace movements in West Africa took um, took responsibility to, to solve. And that led also to the diminishment of, or, or the diminishment, could it, could that be the word? Um, the delegitimization <laughs> of um, the United Nations peacekeeping efforts or peacebuilding efforts or conflict resolution efforts or diplomatic efforts, whatever that may be, or the international system as we knew so far, ability to solve conflicts, to stop crimes against humanity, to avoid the degradation of old wars and the beginning of new wars that we are currently seeing since 1990s to nowadays. And I already have um, recorded a free virtual webinar that is on the Spanish language on my Facebook page. I invite you to check them out. It's called New Wars and what is the difference between the new wars and the old traditional conception of war and warfare and you know this whole philosophic or political philosophy conversation on just wars and what makes a war just and whether that those lines were ever true or were ever uphold. Um, that's a whole conversation that we can have for another episode. But um, let's return to the timeline. Um, back in 1995 and throughout um, the different um, crimes against humanity that were committed between 1995 and 2000s, and specifically the humanitarian intervention and the NATO intervention in Kosovo, but also the recognition of sex or sexual violence as a weapon of war and the degradation of state actors and guerrilla and, you know, um, different combatants on a specific um, ideology or religion or identity or national identity actually put a lot of pressure to the UN Security Council to do something. And the humanitarian intervention in Kosovo, which was late um, approved and was also very controversial, which later in after the 2000s, it was trying to, um, the UN 
system wanted to improve the humanitarian intervention legal framework to include the responsibility to protect, which we have seen after the Arab Spring that <laughs> it went down the window. <laughs> it's not necessarily good. <laughs> um, it, it really led to, to, to a call to action. And it is important to note that the pressure didn't come only from states. It didn't come only from the suffering that we saw on international news media and newspapers, but also through women's peace movements and feminist movements that actually worked in incredibly different arenas to put pressure on this specific structure that has, you know, the ultimate say, <laughs> that has the ultimate deterrent, you know, because they're the ones having nuclear weapons and, you know, the hegemonic masculinity um, concept, you know, they, they hold that concept of hegemonic masculinity to actually do something to stop human suffering at these levels something that we can discuss in another episode whether that was actually true or not and the whole hegemonic conversation hegemonic masculinity conversation on the un um, security council if you are interested in hegemonic masculinity and hegemonic femininity we already have recorded an episode on this on this podcast i'm gonna list it down below for you to check it out we talked about what this actually means but meanwhile, um, it is important to trace back to all the horrors that we lived in the 1990s and how they were against this whole globalization theory and this whole liberalism, um, peace conversation, which after the end of the Cold War, it seemed as if a new world was starting, and I think it was Francis Fukuyama who actually um, coined that phrase. Um, but how many new worlds are we talking about, and whether those new worlds include women or not? And that's where the Women, Peace and Security Agenda was born. Um, specifically, it came about with the UN Security uh, Council Resolution 1325, but it wasn't enough. Um, this specific um, resolution was then followed eight years later with several others. So we're talking that during a span of eight years, that 1325 was a beacon of hope on conflicts and recognizing that women and girls actually had a say in the peace process, in the conflict resolution, and they were the bearers of violence committed against their bodies, like war was passing through the bodies of women. But that went okay, or we can say okay on their quote, of course, um, until 2018, when a new resolution was adopted, um, June 29th, um, June 19, sorry, June 19, 2008, which recognizes sexual violence as a weapon and tactic of war. 
it noted as well that rape and other forms of sexual violence can constitute a war crime, crime against humanity, or a constitutive act with respect to genocide. It also calls for training of troops on preventing and responding to sexual violence, and it also calls for the deployment of women in peace operations. The 1820 was then followed by several others resolution that resolutions that actually kind of clarified some elements that were overseen or understated by the previous one. The 1888, um, approved in September 30, 2009, reiterates that sexual violence exacerbates armed conflict and impedes international peace and security. It calls for leadership to address conflict-related sexual violence, and it calls for the deployment of team of experts where cases of sexual violence occurs. This is in 2008 and 2009, the same year, 2009, where the 1889 um, resolution was approved on October 5th, which focuses on post-conflict peace building and on women's participation in all stages of peace process, and it calls for the deployment, um, the development of indicators to measure the implementation of U.S. Security Council 1325. Keep in mind these days, because these dates, sorry, because 2018 was when the global market crashed in um, the United States specifically, but also around the world. That was like a big crisis. Um, and we had a span of eight years where the global war on terror took place and we saw the invasion of Afghanistan, the invasion of Iraq. And then by 2010, we see the flourishment of the Arab Spring and all the different conflicts and wars that some of them can still continue nowadays. In, 19, in 2010, um, we had the resolution 1960 um, adopted in December of that year. It reiterates the call for an end to sexual violence in our conflict. It set up a naming and shaming listing mechanism sending a direct political message that there are consequences for sexual violence, including listing in Secretary General annual reports, referrals to UN section committees and to the ICC, International Condemnation and Reparations. I mean, sorry if I, I sound like I'm laughing, but it's just a bit, um, like, seriously, that's, will this make a difference? <laughs> It didn't make a difference. It stayed on paper, and we could see it in the following other resolutions, the 2106 um, approved in 2013, which focuses on operationalizing current obligations rather than on creating new structures initiatives. It includes language on women's participation in combating sexual violence, and it supports recourse to avenues of justice. That same year, the 21-22, was adopted, um, explicitly affirming an integrated approach to sustainable peace, setting out concrete methods for women's, women's um, participation in combatant um, roles. It also recognizes the need to address root causes of armed conflict and security risks faced by women, and it also calls for the provision of multi-sectoral services 
to women affected by conflict, links disarmament and gender equality by mentioning ATT twice. And then the last um, three other um, resolutions approved in 2015 and 2019 basically encouraged um, the importance of integrating WPS in um, national action plans and how to affirm that sexual violence in conflict is, is, is a continuum of the gender violence and the violence committed against women and girls regardless of a conflict setting or an armed conflict setting. Um, 2019 being the year where the Nobel Peace Prize um, recognized Denise Mukewes as well as Nadia Moran's um, work to help stop um, sexual violence committed against women in war. Um, and I feel like you know, these resolutions are trying to keep up with the demands of the time. And you can see in the timeline, if we could start tracing the years and the conflicts that led to the conversations of the WPS agenda's effectivity or, or how good or, or how inefficient is the implementation in several settings, you will find some answers. Um, I'm gonna set in the description box of this episode a link to the timelines um, created by Peace Women, um, which is an organization or the website of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which also has a big history mobilizing efforts, uh, mobilizing women on stopping war and you know creating and building the conditions for long-lasting peace. So, with that in mind, what are some feminist approaches or feminist critiques to this agenda? Well, the first one, and probably the obvious one, is how significant is the assumption that by including women to the equation, by including women by quotas or any other mechanism into the seating table of peace process or in the combatants role or in any type of peacekeeping or humanitarian efforts that will bring peace or that will bring gender equality or that will change the structural causes of violence committed against women and girls. There is a critique by feminist scholars, by queer theory scholars in IR against these at women, at women and stare kind of method. And the problem of seeing women by quotas or seeing women by numbers is that it fails to um, address the structural conception of these institutions that we want to bring them in. We do not challenge the male-dominated or the masculine-dominated spheres of influence or of power conception, but rather we just invite women in to the operations rather than, wait, 
let me revisit <laughs> the operation itself. Regardless of whether there's women or men or people from different gender identities inside of this operation, that does not get questioned. There's not an amendment of the institutions. It is seen as if we include women, then the institution itself by default, because once again, we are over assuming that that will happen which we know, in most cases, it doesn't. We believe, or it is believed, in these specific conversations that if we include women to the conflict negotiations, to peace processes, or peace building, or peacekeeping efforts, then by some reason, because women are naturally caregivers, biologically ingrained to be more nurturer or more peaceful prone, etc., that peace will be achieved. It still does not address, it still does not stop violence against women and girls. I read an article a couple of years ago when I was covering the peace process in Colombia, the peace referendum specifically in 2016, by a Spanish author, Carmen Magallon. I'm going to list it below in the description box. And she wrote this article that actually you know, was very concise in, on, in, in sharing how women and peace together in real politics cancel each other out. If real politics or the realistic view of international relations or realism theory, which is so beautifully cherished by many institutions and think tanks and universities and centers of knowledge production and knowledge reproduction love realist theory to explain states' relationships towards one another and towards other non-state actors and towards the international system itself, how it is possible for them to see beyond the four basic notions of that theory, which are war, state, power, and citizenship. Is, is peace into the power realm? <laughs> is peace into the citizenship realm? Where is it, you know, in these four different notions and concepts that get studied time and time again since Hans Morgenthau until nowadays? And even before, if we go to ancient um, Greece and, you know, political science beginnings and IR um, as a field of political study conception, where is peace? Where does peace fit into these four dimensions of study? Where does women fit? 
women and other people from other gender identities, where do men fit as well? Where do queer people fit? Where? Where are humans in this equation? Oh, Natalia, but we're talking about international relations. This is not supposed to be talking about people. Why are you focusing on that? You know, people, if you want to focus on people, go to sociology. If you want to care about what other people suffer and, you know, experience war, then go to anthropology or social sciences. Do not go to political science for that. Like, why? Are, you know, you're mixing the tables. You should not talk about it. Like, that's an issue for, you know, sociology experts and psychologic um, majors, like international relations. We should not care about people because this field is all about states. Yeah, but states commit violence against its people. States can engage into violence against its own citizens and citizens from other countries. Where do states fighting other states stop being an abstract conversation? Where does it actually invite us in? Where does it actually talk about and with us? As citizens of those nations, as citizens of those states, as researchers of those states' behaviors that we so interestingly, interestingly want to, you know, solve and you know, represent as diplomats or, you know, as researchers of the top think tanks. And, you know, like, when you go into an international relations field, like, many people have a lot of dreams of, you know, becoming the diplomat of your own countries, you know, going to the embassies, going to international conferences, and, you know, like saying with pride that I work for the government, that I work on foreign policy. Yeah, like that's amazing. But where does the human suffering that one state inflicts upon its, itself and to uh, the other stops being something about gain our losses, about state's behavior as it is so distant and so disconnected from human experience. Why is this field so elitist? So above <laughs> the others? <laughs> I don't know. There are articles written by Carol Kahn by Helen Kinsella and Sherry Gibbons. I'm gonna share on the description box. It's called Women, Peace and Security Resolution 1325. And it talks about how this resolution is failing to deconstruct either international, national, or local institutions which are preventing gender equality in the long run. 
Another article that I'm going to feature down below, um, it was written by Sagal Bafo, she's the German campaign coordinator at Oxfam, talks about the state centrism in this agenda and this state-centric understanding of war and how the WPS with its more than 10 resolutions places women and girls or women and children, which is something that also Cynthia Eloe, another feminist author and critique, said was worrisome because it places women and girls and children in this victim mode, in this victim role that they cannot escape from. They're doomed to be objects or subjects to violence in conflict and the resolutions recognize that sexual violence is bad at least the later um, resolutions which mostly focus on this topic interestingly enough if we see you know what happened after the arab spring and you know how um sex and lately hunger has uh, are being used as weapons of war but this state-centric understanding of war overlooks the fact that it's not about only women it's not about bringing women to the table all the time It's not about filling the quota of liberal feminism of 50-50 in peace efforts or in conflict resolution efforts. But where are the women in conflict making? Where are the men? Where are the masculine perceptions of conflict resolution or war declaration hold or held accountable? Why the UN Security Council is not condemning war? Why the UN Security Council is not condemning and acting against sexual torture? How effective are these resolutions? You know, like you continue signing these resolutions, recognizing, oh, that sexual torture is bad and sexual violence is bad and beware anybody that does it. Yeah, but like who's actually implementing this, that this does not happen. That's one of the other criticisms coming from feminist theory and also from refractivist um, theory, which is the lack of accountability, the lack of mechanisms and monitoring efforts and disciplinary cautions that the US Security Council has proven incapable of doing. Because every UN Security Council member plays a huge role in several of these new wars, in several, be it funding non-state or state actors, being backing state actors or non-state actors or other, you know, non-related and non-necessarily recognized actors playing part in these conflicts, etc. And they don't want to hold each other accountable. They say, 
the UN Security Council is like the boys club. We have talked about it specifically connected to the nuclear conversation, but it's, it's, it's incredibly upsetting. These gender and war systems, they shape each other. And it seems as if we are only scratching the surface. Because going deeper will mean causing more trouble. And it feels as if feminist groups and women's peace groups, movements, etc., are the ones that should do it, you know, because men are not interested or they may not be, you know, wanting to deconstruct their own masculinities because we are making assumptions that they don't want to. But I know men that want to actually deconstruct themselves. It's just they don't have the spaces, as many spaces as we women do, to do so. They are packs. The male bonding that happens through war and conflict still is 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 available and, and it appears also as well in many of our countries in social packs. There are male bonding social packs and social contracts depending on our cultures and whether you know where we live, etc. that they're trying to break, but they may not have the tools or they may not have the courage or or they don't know how to start. I started wondering about this, about whether any women's group is a feminist group. And I started to question that. Not every women's group, not every women group that call each other feminist is actually upholding to feminist values. It may use the word feminist, it may use the word women, but not necessarily upholding the feminist values. They may uphold feminine values, not feminist values. And this is important for me to say. Because as we have seen in the women's peace movements that have taken place for over a century, Yes, women have made a lot of strides against the process, but they have not done the strides alone. This UN Security Council 1325 resolution was, yes, pressured by women's groups, by women's peace groups and feminist organizations. Yes, it was pressured, but it was approved by men representatives in some cases, in some countries that were, you know, in part of these conversations. The pressure may be there, sure, but we cannot demonize the other because the other is trying. It may be to shut us off, you know, like just sign it. And so they stopped whining and they stopped, 
you know, going to the streets and protesting. Yeah, they may be doing that. Yes, true. I'm completely open to that idea. But I'm not open to the belief that none other gender identity, none other human being in this planet beyond women wants to change things. I'm, I'm definitely not that skeptic. And I think that's something that we need to talk about more. And I hope with the different partnerships that we are going to share in the following months on the Middle East and WBS and National Action Plans on several countries, implementation will shed light on these conversations and these dormant realities that we may fail to see um, or perhaps not seeing fully. I know for sure that I'm not seeing it all fully and I'm open to explore more with you in this podcast and with all the interviews that we are coordinating for the following episodes. Another criticism specifically related to the past or the last um, resolutions of the UN Security Council WPS agenda connected to the sexual violence as a weapon of war. Um, there's an interesting article created by uh, Ruth Artiles Valero um, on how feminist is the UN nation's women, peace, and security agenda. It was published in May 2020. I'm going to list it down below in the description box. She talks about rape as a weapon of war, as a method cheaper than bullets, which, with which you can terrorize and eradicate populations and national identities is the subject around which the WPS agenda has focused the most. And uh, that is troublesome because she quotes Peter Mann and she also quotes Carol Kahn's work on how the focus on rape as a weapon of war has created new hierarchies and forms of exclusion, equating a threat to women's bodies as a threat to national security has demonstrated that the ultimate concern of the UN Security Council is national securitization and not necessarily the elimination of sexual violence per se, which, I close quote, which actually connects to many of the episodes that we have recorded in this podcast. We are failing to address the unequal power relations, the unequal gender dimensions, because in the international relations field, through the realist theory, and even through some of the other theories, liberalist theory, Marxist theory, etc., state as an actor is perceived as gender blind, or gender neutral and it is not you can connect it through masculine or feminine values you can connect it through 
gender identities or gender perspectives or you can go through any of these lenses of sociology or anthropology or you know like psychology you can try to figure out how to best place a lens on state's behavior but if you go to the root of realist theory you will find since the leviathan since the doctrine of the tat of cardinal richelieu that the state as an actor the state as a structure the state as a concept the nation state was perceived and conceived as a man figure trace back to all the different traditional books that they make us read whenever we engage in international relations field at the university go back to political science let's go to plato let's go to aristotle's let's go to all these incredible dudes from you know ancient times you will find this image in drawings, in descriptions, in cover books, <laughs> you will find it. I want to finish this episode. Um, I don't want it to be too long. <laughs> um, on this mis misrepresentation of gender as a women issue and believing that whenever we approach a women peace and security agenda we are providing space for women and that's good that's good because we are inviting women in the conversation we are inviting inviting women in the sitting table and in conflict resolution and in spheres that are you know stereotypically dominated for women that's incredible yeah but this misrepresentation in real politic is not necessarily that obvious when you start tracing back to statistics from UN women you find that between 1992 and 2019 women constituted on average 13 percent 13 percent of negotiators six percent of mediators and six percent of signatories in major peace processes worldwide about seven out of every 10 peace processes did not include women mediators or women signatories that's over 30 years the span of 30 years 1992 to 2019 next year we're gonna celebrate the 30th <laughs> the 30th um, year landmark thirty years women if they're so connected to peace if they're so valuable for peace processes they're 13% of negotiators 
as 6% of signatories and 6% of mediators. It still is a man masculine dominated sphere of real politic. Peace, security is part of the real politic, a realm of masculine state centric perceptions, conceptions, behaviors. But the Women, Peace and Security agenda invites women in. <laughs> That's the difference. <laughs> the significant difference. <laughs> anyway, um, there's a lot to uncover. Um, I hope that this first episode shed some light onto everything that we are covering with the latest interviews on Ukraine, on gender and militarization, etc. I want to ask you as well in your own process of understanding this agenda and everything that we are going to uncover in the following episodes to start asking yourself, where do men fit here? Where are the missing men that Jeff Hearn in his incredible book and articles explain? Where are the men's issues that require attention? Where are the other gender dimensions that are not being shown because we are so concerned about women and peace that probably we are not concerned about women's active role in war declaration and in as combatants, as political figures, as something more than just victims, passive recipients of violence committed against them. Where, who benefits from these narratives in the UN Security Council and in other think tanks and beautiful universities that have top, top, top recognitions and, you know, pats in the bag and whatever. Like, who benefits from these narratives? Ask yourself that. I'm asking myself too. I want to say this is bullshit. <laughs> it is for me because where is the actual attention to the root causes of gender inequality in conflict settings or in negative or positive peace? Where? Who benefits? Should we applaud? that the percentages are rising, that more women in quantity are better? Is that a representation of the ad women and their success formula? Formula of success? Is that it? So, so excited for recording this episode. Looking forward to reading your thoughts, your comments. I already have shared on my Twitter account as well as on the Instagram account of this podcast. Follow at um, womenhood underscore IR. Several surveys because we are, you know, starting our community in Patreon. We are also preparing for the first Women and Peace Fest um, of this podcast, which is going to be on September 18th. And I want to feature as many of the webinars and films and docs that you will be mostly interested about. So please be sure to 
check the surveys, um, share your thoughts, your ideas to craft this um, new event, which is going to be on Saturday, Saturday, September 18th. Subscribe to our newsletter, join our community in Patreon, and um, share, share your thoughts on this and more. Read the links on the description box. If you have other articles that you want to recommend, please be sure to reach out and share via DM. I look forward to reading you. Thank you so much for tuning in and talk to you soon.